Thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you liked today's message. As we open the scriptures together, the text today is going to be in the latter part of chapter 8 of the book of Mark. And I have, just to show you that I am a reasonably techie guy, I have it on here on the iPad, which I'm sure many of you do. Uh, And, of course, I have it in the scriptures in, in a book form. Let me encourage you, by the way, and this is old guy talking, if you use a, a, a written Bible, consider bringing it to church when you come. You know, you get to look here in your text, you get to make marginal notes, and you get to be a, an, an obvious example to those who see you that this is a Bible-believing church, a church that God's word is held in high esteem, and that we are obedient to it, encouraged by it, empowered by it, and love it. So let me just, that's just a word of encouragement. And if you use the iPad or iPhone or some other electronic version, that's, of course, fine, too. I entitled the sermon today, and I think it's going to come up on a slide one now, Two Questions of Jesus. Who are you, and why have you come? Actually, there are three questions, but I'm going to ask the third one later. And uh, the, the text today... I'm going to get this uh, just a little out of the way because I've got it all written here. The text today follows closely on Ed's message of last week, where Jesus and his disciples were walking up to Caesarea Philippi, uh, he and the dozen, and it was a pretty good walk. And you know, they're not walking on an asphalt road, of course, they're walking on a pathway through hilly terrain. They got sandals on their feet. They're walking along, and Jesus is probably at the head a little bit, maybe Peter right beside him or slightly behind. And as they're walking, they are talking, of course. There may be a crowd gathering behind them, but his intent was to be alone with his disciples for a while. And as they're walking, he asks them, who do people say I am? And he gets, as you can see in the text, beginning in, the, in the, 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 the latter part of Mark chapter 8, you know, Elijah, you, some say you are Elijah, some say you are Moses, some say this or that. And Jesus asks them specifically, but who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter answers him, you are the Christ. In Matthew's version, uh, The phrase is added, son of the living God. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. To tell no one. This was not the time for that to be revealed broadly yet. This was a time that they would come to understand this. Slide three, if we can. Beginning our text, verse 31 And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The next part of the passage says, verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will use it, lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes to the glory of his Father, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, verse 1 of chapter 9, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So, two questions. Who are you and why did you come? Two questions still asked. In fact, every saint, every believer at some point in time has had the answers to those questions revealed. Who are you and why did you come? The Bible contains, as you all I'm sure know, 66 what we call books. Well, throughout the history of the church, all have been held as the word of God. They vary greatly in style, genre, and purpose, and the way they meet our needs, don't they? They're not all the same. They vary a lot. There is poetry, history, prophecy, letters, and even a love letter. You husbands want to spend a good evening with your wife, read the Song of Solomon to her. It's a lovely experience. But do it in private. Within them are allegories, metaphors, parables, commands, doctrinal treatises, on and on. I, I know many of you have read through the Bible, some of you multiple times. And all Christians, we would hope, go to God's Word for counsel, for comfort, for knowledge of Him and encouragement in our lives and for strength in making our testimony before the world. For instance, when seeking understanding of the profound doctrines of the faith, justification by faith, and um, so many others, we might turn to Paul's letters to the churches in Rome and elsewhere, deep theological truths. For guidance in living the Christian life, maybe we'd turn to Peter's letters or James's letter or some of Paul's prison letters, which often probe our hearts and spur us to deeper commitment to our Savior. For a more majestic view of God's plan and for the redemption and protection of his people, the Old Testament historical books and the writings of Moses lift our horizons. The Psalms lift our eyes to God and his care for us. The Proverbs help us to be wise in our relationships with others. There's a wide variety of scripture. And to enrich our knowledge of and relationship with Jesus, the person, we turn to the Gospels. John's Gospel opens our eyes to his majesty, his holiness, and the perfection of his work in securing God's purposes for us. The Synoptic Gospels, meaning they have a common viewpoint, that's what the word means, synoptic, 
Those Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, help us to know the person in whom we place our faith and hope for eternity, Jesus, intimately by their narratives of his time on the earth. The Gospel of Mark, believed to be the earliest, as you learned earlier in the series of sermons by the pastors here on Mark, is probably the testimony of Peter to what he observed and participated in while in the company of the other disciples. It is a great place to accelerate your intimacy with Christ, with our Savior, so that we can better know Christ and make him known, in the words of Paul. And three important life-changing questions are answered in the study of the Gospels. The first two I've mentioned. Who are you and why did you come? As you remember from Ed, Ed's sermon last week, <clears throat> the, the message, the first of eight chapters of the 16 in Mark focus on the first question. Mark has 16 chapters. The first eight, who are you? Mark accounts what Jesus did and in some cases said, center on, issue, on that issue. For example, within the first eight chapters we have, and I'm going to go through a list here very quickly, John the Baptist prepares the way in Jesus' baptism, Jesus' temptation, Jesus calls the first disciples, Jesus heal, heals the man with an unclean spirit, Jesus heals many others, Jesus preaches and casts out demons, Jesus cleanses a leper, he heals a paralytic, he teaches that he is Lord of the Sabbath, he heals a man with a withered hand, calls the 12 apostles. He teaches about the Holy Spirit, the parable of the sower, the mustard seed. He calms a storm. Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. He heals a woman and Jairus' brother, or his daughter. Jesus is re rejected at Nazareth. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on water. That's the one where Peter starts to sink. Remember that? We'll come back to that briefly. Jesus heals the sick. A deaf man and feeds 4,000. He heals a blind man, last week we heard, with his saliva. That took two applications. Remember? Twice. These things come about by prayer. Last week, uh, we arrived at the pivot point, the end of chapter 8, like a hinge. We turn to the second question. Why did you come? And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea, and on the way his disciples asked, Why, who do people say that I am? And so on, and you heard the answer to that. But who do you say I am? And he strictly charged them not to tell. So we're going to move forward now into the second half, the second major message of Mark. In verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected by elders, and so on, all of those things. One of the great benefits of reading the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels in particular, and meditating on them, is that they were written very early in the apostolic age. The Holy Spirit had not yet been given to the church. They were the recollections of the apostles and others into what Jesus did. They were intended to provide the answers to these questions I just mentioned. So they are clear, relatively concise, and contain very few theological terms complex arguments or logical prescriptions. And we have three of them, three of them, to compare with one another. Here's a tip. When you're studying the synoptics, you know, if you use an electronic version or handwritten, you can put out the version in all three versions. 
This was very helpful to me when I was looking through the passage because there are slight differences. And each one enhances the other and opens our mind further to what was going on in this interaction with Jesus and his disciples. So when considering our passage for today, there are very few, if any, things that are hard to understand that, that escape our insights. Intellectually, that is. The narrative is simple. The wording is clear. That Jesus explained these things plainly. We can understand what is being said to us. But there are a couple of things that might require clarification for us. For instance, what does Jesus mean when he refers to himself as the Son of Man? The term is used about 80 times in the Gospels by Jesus for himself. Basically, as a substitute for Messiah or the Christ. He is called the Christ, and he's called Messiah, uh, Christ just before this by Peter. But he uses the term the Son of Man. It's a substitute for those terms. And the most helpful reference in the Old Testament to help us understand its meaning and scope is found in the book of Daniel, as you may know. Chapter 7, I'll quote. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Is there any other person in your knowledge for whom that description would be appropriate? There's only one, Jesus a son of man here. It's an important prophetic passage, but the link between the son of man and a suffering servant, servant was not commonly made by Israel. In fact, it wasn't made at all, which is probably part of the reason Jesus used it to not stir up political unrest early. That's probably why he didn't call himself the Messiah or the Christ. That term would, would have triggered fire and, and outrage. Ultimately, even the son of man did, but it, this was not the time yet. And so he refers himself as the Son of Man, not a Son of Man as Daniel does, but the Son of Man, always the definite article, the Son of Man. Secondly, we might need a little help in understanding what Jesus refers to at the end of the passage when he says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Over the centuries, a number of interpretations of that have been offered by people who study it. The five most commonly are, first, that he's referring to the transfiguration, the passage you'll hear about very soon. happens in six days, which is the next one in Mark's gospel. That may be why the ninth chapter begins this, with this statement, and it does. But the statement really belongs in the eighth chapter with the previous narrative. In the 15th century or so, as you may know, that's when the chapter numbers and verse numbers were added to the scriptures. The original text did not have any of that. So all of that was added later. And why did uh, chapter 9, verse 1 go in chapter 9? Who knows? Maybe the person who was doing all this work ahead of time for the church was riding in a wagon and hit a bump and, oop, oop, well, I guess that's the beginning of chapter 9. So and who knows? We don't really know. But it really belongs in chapter 8. Anyway, it doesn't make sense to me that Jesus would make this statement about some of you will not taste death for something that was going to happen in a few days. Who died in the next six days? 
None of the apostles did. Maybe someone in the crowd did, but it's not clear. I don't think the transfiguration is what Jesus was referring to here. The other explanations are the resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, the destruction of the temple, and the second coming. I think we can rule out the second coming. Hasn't happened yet. They said some will see it. In my, uh, I agree basically, basically with those who think it most likely refers to a combination of the events, those number two, three, and four, the resurrection, then Pentecost, culminating with the destruction of the temple. The resurrection indicated God's satisfaction with the sacrifice of Jesus, his acceptance of that work on the cross, that painful, lonely, agonizing death for sin for you and me. But then the Holy Spirit came. Acts 2 is a a wonderful sermon by Peter about that and some great statements in it. And then finally, in 70 AD, the utter destruction of the temple. The beginning of that happened on the cross when Jesus was sacrificed. What happened? Remember? There was a great thunderclap, and within the temple, between the holy place and the holy of holies, what happened? The curtain was ripped. That which prevented God's people from entering his presence had been satisfied. And now, because of the work of Christ, we have access to him. And so the temple was destroyed. All of the rites of Israel, the the, the ceremonial washings, the sacrifice of animals, all of that passed by. It was entirely now the coming of the kingdom in power. The power came in kingdom. Sorry, the kingdom came in power. And it still comes in power. I'm looking at the kingdom. I'm looking at people brought from death to life. From death to life. To life in Christ. We are the kingdom. Millions past and perhaps millions future are the coming of the kingdom in power. And we will rejoice with him together someday and all of that kingdom. There's a third element in our passage which may cause us to scratch our head. Verse 33, but looking and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. The King James Version says, get thee behind me. It's a little more poetic. I memorized stuff in the King James years ago, but I'm using ESV now. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, this is Peter, who had just confessed that he was the Christ. And Jesus says to him, get thee behind me, Satan. And by the way, I do not believe he used that low inflection that I'm using now. Get thee behind me, Satan, is how I think Jesus said that. And he had turned to face his disciple, the text says. And I think that's an important point. Here they were walking along. Who do you say? Who do you say? Peter says the Christ. He begins to tell them as he goes that he must suffer and so on, as the rest of the text explains. And then Peter accosts him, perhaps touched his sleeve, and rebukes him, says, that can't happen to you. That's Matthew's version, part of it. 
That cannot, he, and the word rebuke is the same word that Jesus has used for Jesus rebuking demons. The same word. That was pretty bold, Peter. But more striking was the response. Get behind me, Satan. Do you think uh, Peter was really being called Satan by the Lord? I'm not sure Jesus was calling Peter Satan. Peter had just confessed to the Messiahship of Christ. Matthew's recording says, uh, includes the statement, the son of the living God. And Jesus confirms this by replying in Matthew, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. And for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Followed by Jesus' revelation of Peter's important ministries ahead. I don't think Jesus was calling Peter Satan, but the words Peter spoke were satanic in origin. He'd been affected by the devil. The disciples couldn't see, nor could the crowd could see Satan, but Jesus could. And so he said, get behind me. What did he mean? This is where reading and rereading a passage like this helps. They were on their way to Caesar Philippi, right? They were walking along, probably with Jesus in the lead, as I mentioned, and Peter nearby. And he began to teach, and he said about these things that must happen to him, as Ed emphasized last week. These things, suffering, many things, rejection and death and resurrection must happen. They are essential to his purpose. But Peter, who from childhood had been taught that the kingdom meant the, res- the, the restoral of the throne of David, and the overthrow of the, harsh, of the harsh rule of Rome in Israel, he couldn't accept that. Those are words he just could not hear. He could not understand because he was thinking the thoughts of men. He was listening to words from another source, satanic words, words that if they became reality would make Jesus' purpose of nothing. God's entire plan would be undone. And you would still be in your sins. He loved Jesus, but he didn't understand him yet. And would not for a while. Still further work on his heart remained. Kind of like us. Still further work remains. So Jesus turned. He turned. And he faced his disciples and Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. He placed himself between Satan, the source of all evil. He placed himself between Satan and his disciples and all who would follow. He blocked them from being taken by Satan. Jesus did that there. It's an excellent early evidence of what he came to do. I came to stop the ruler of this world, to defeat him. So he turned. A preview of what Jesus revealed to Peter shortly before the terrible events, this was. He alludes to here, here begin that, that, you know, the events that start this downward spiral to the cross from there on. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And that was before Peter's denial. 
Jesus knew all those things were going to happen. He knew that Peter was going to have a wonderful role in the church. But he also knew that there was more work to be done in helping Peter's heart be turned fully from the world to his Savior. That his eyes and his ears would not be looking and seeing, hearing the wrong things, but he would be listening to his Savior. I, I kind of, no, this is not a paraphrase and it's not in the scriptures, but in my mind, what Jesus was saying was when he said, get behind me, Satan, he was saying, you may not have Peter. Okay, a little audience participation now. I'm going to say that phrase again, but when I say the word, after I say the word have, say your first name loudly. You may not have Noel. You may not have, say your name. You may not have, you're, not, you're right. Jesus at that point in time was denying Satan the right and the claim on the saints, on you and on me. Think about that for a bit. You may not have him. They are mine. Jesus says in John, of the ones you gave me, I will not lose one, right? I will not lose any. All who've come to Christ will persevere to the end. So the answer to the second question, why did you come? He came to suffer, he says. He came to be rejected. He came to die in shame and agony alone. He came to rise again and claim a people from every tribe, nation, language, and age. Prophesied in Daniel. A bride adorned with his righteousness, held by his love forever. And he gave to, came to give us words that, to which we must listen. He came to defeat Satan. The Christian life is a life of change. Fundamentally, it's a life about change. You know, there's a spectrum, dead in sin to alive in Christ, and purely so. It's not even a horizontal thing, probably. It's kind of like this. We come from death and sin, and we grow and grow and grow in grace and so on until when we cross that river, we will see him and be like him as he is. It's not even a straight line there, I don't think. It's kind of like ovals. You know, we go up and then we go back a little, we go up and so on. Some of the big ovals and some are little ones. Some are long and flat, but some are deep. But we're moving again and again. It's a life of change. All change comes through the work of the triune God on our hearts. All change does. Millions of people every year make New Year's resolutions, right? I'm going to do this. How many, have you ever broken one? I have, you know. I'm going to lose 30 pounds. Well, you know, it ended up being three. Okay, or whatever. We make lots of the commitments to change. Their counseling cases are filled with situations where you've heard about them and seen them and so on. Uh, abused spouses and husbands promise, I'm going to stop. And what happens? They don't. We say, I'm not going to lust after the things of the world anymore. And we do. We say many things that we're going to change. And we can't make it happen. True change, lasting change, comes through the work of the triune God. So what shall we do is the question. It really is, how can I change? 
How can I change? It's a question asked from the very first day of the empowerment of the church. I referred to it before, the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. The day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit, the Helper, was given to all called in faith in Christ. At the end of Peter's sermon, yep, this same Peter, this same Peter who said, this can't happen. This same Peter who, started to, who sink, started to sink before when his faith gets shallow. This same Peter who said, I'll never deny you, and then does. That same Peter, to whom Jesus was very patient as he is with us, and kept teaching and encouraging and lifting him up. The same, same Peter, the end of his sermon says, Let all the house of Israel, therefore, knowing what had happened, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, from fear to boldness before all in proclaiming the name of Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Jesus answers that question. He came to suffer. He came to be rejected. He came to die in shame. He came to rise again. He came to defeat question. And that question has been asked many, many times. Some of the answers are, calling the crowd to him later on, he says, you're going to have to bear a cross. He says that to all the apostles and the disciples. We will bear a cross. It's not a cross that you and I will select. It's a cross from the wisdom of God. Your cross will be different from mine but we'll bear a cross. We will share in the sufferings of our Savior. Paul writes about that in detail, as does Peter. We will share his sufferings. Sometimes the sufferings that we suffer are a result of our own sin. Things that I did or did not do. In recollection, I suffer. God promises not to remember, but I remember them now. Other sufferings and maybe the greater preponderance of them, come from outside. They come from the disdain of the world, those still under the power of the king of this world, Satan. He's been defeated, but he still breathes and, and has influence until that day has come. And so we see around us the effect of sin. Have you been exposed at all to the scope of the, the, the nature of Child sex abuse around the world. Trafficking. It stirs your heart. It stirs mine. I don't know what to do about it, but I suffer thinking about it. Lord, help me figure out how to help. Some of it is just being people being disdainful of you in your testimony. Ah, yeah, what you believe is, is maybe good for you, but it's a bunch of, it's, it's nuts. I don't go along with it. You will hear. Some of the suffering is observing the suffering of others. I have a dear friend, a classmate from the academy, one who led me to Christ in that second year. We've been close since then. He helped me in discipleship. He and his wife and my wife and I have been dear and close for years and years. We know each other's kids and grandkids. We've shared each other's sufferings. He is a blessing to my life. He is now leaving us little by little from dementia. 
I think maybe if I see him soon out in Colorado, he will not recognize me. He did in October when I saw him, but I think not now. I suffer. His wife suffers, but her testimony is pure and sweet. God is blessing this, even in the staff, in the place in which he is, and yet we suffer. We suffer the loss of loved ones. Jesus did too. And so, as we share these sufferings, that's part of our calling. That's part of the cross. We need to do things like deny ourselves, Jesus says, and take up a cross daily. We need to lose our lives for his sake and the gospels. We need to give up love for the world for love for Christ. What do all this look like in the daily living experience, you say, you ask? And how long does it take? Will it be quick or will it be like Peter's experience, little by little? You know, last week we heard the, the, the healing of the blind man and the two applications of Jesus' saliva. Spit, I think it might be used in the word in, in one of the versions. You know, if, if, I was, if, if Peter were the one being dealt with and I was Jesus, I might have said to Peter at some point in time, Peter, I'm going to run out of spit. Get the picture, buddy. Get with the program. But Jesus didn't do that. How patient he was and how patient he is with us. Continued applications of his power and grace to us. The change that you need to make in your life will come through the power of God, the work of the Spirit, and the patient love of your Savior. And so we need to listen to him and his word. That's another thing he was saying. Don't listen to Satan. Listen to me. And you'll hear that again next week or a week after when you talk about the transfiguration. Don't listen to the world, not to the opinions of others, not even to your own heart. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Yep, your heart has been changed, but there's still a cinder of sin in there that Jesus will gradually extinguish. But it's there. Don't listen to your heart. Listen to the word. Listen to the leading of the spirit. Get counsel of the saints and grow in grace. And talk about what you're dealing with with each other and help each other. So first of all, and secondly, we do not, we, they, these words mean that we do not disguise our faith and attitudes and actions in, with attitudes and actions the world will find acceptable. We are not to be ashamed of his words. They mean, for example, that we might need to ask this question. Is there anyone who knows me who does not know that I am a Christian? I've pondered this while preparing for today's message. And I have to admit, I have some fixing to do. I can name people who do not know that I'm a follower of Jesus. And that's because I've been secretly ashamed of him. My regard for the opinions of others outweighed my willingness to hear my, bear my cross and share my Savior's sufferings. Perhaps you're in the same place. So, if the answer to the question is yes, there are some who know, don't know that I'm a Christian, we need to fix that. We need to give clear testimony by word and by deed. But there may be some here 
who have not, but have not heard, but yet must hear and believe the answer Peter gave to the question on Pentecost. Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. That's the promise. If you have not yet turned to Jesus, why are you waiting? You want the world? Jesus said, it's not worth it. It's not worth your soul. It's not worth what I have purposed for you. So come. Come to him. The cross made it possible. And your own cross will be born too. But in life, the truly abundant life is a wonderful beyond all description. It is eternal. It is fundamentally a life of love and peace with God himself. In a few minutes, we are going to share the Lord's Supper together, the communion, the, the, the table of grace. We will claim by doing so that we are united with him in his suffering, joining millions in the past and the future, as I said before, partaking of the spilled blood and broken body of Christ, which the wine and the bread, grape juice, I guess we use grape juice, don't we, huh? represent. Before you join in, before you join in, saints, take a moment in prayer. This is something you need to put before the cross, to confess, to, to ask Jesus if he will continue the work of change in you. Turn your eyes to Jesus. If you are not able, for instance, before when I asked you to say your names, if you in good conscience could not say, in paraphrase, you may not have, and then your name wasn't there. If in your heart, you can't say that with confidence. The table really may not be for you. You may not be in Christ. But it could be. You don't have to go through a process. You don't have to go through a set of rituals. There is no urn filled with water for you to wash at before you come to the risen Christ. You can come right where you are. It's a few simple words spoken from the heart, meant with all that you know. Jesus, save me. Jesus, be the Christ for me. Jesus, draw me to yourself. He will do that. And then you can come to the table with us and join in this fellowship of saints going through some significant change, some of that creating suffering, and grow and experience the power of God as you are changed day by day into the image of your Savior. I want to close with a request. Uh, and I, I know I may be a minute over here, but I'm going to do it anyway. On Friday, I went to a business establishment locally that I've frequent regularly for some normal transactions, business run by a man and his wife in town. And I went and got the transaction done and picked up what I needed and, and paid. And the, the proprietress, the lady who owns it, was standing there. And I 
it was Friday, and I walked as I was walking out. I said, are you, you and your husband looking for a day off on Sunday? And she said, yeah, kind of. And she looked a little bit. And I walked over near the counter where she was, and I said, well, do you and, do, do you and he take time, like maybe each of you take a half a day uh, and take some time off to get other stuff done? You know, they're running a six-day-a-week business. And she looked at me, and I saw a look of sadness in her eyes and in her face. Not grief, just sadness. And she said, he's no longer here. And I thought at first maybe her husband had died. But I said to her, have you separated? And she said, yes. And I don't know them well, but I just said, I'm so sorry. And she said, I am too. So I said to her, do you believe in prayer? And she said, no. I said, would you mind if I prayed for you? She said, no. I didn't pray then, but I said, I will do that. And then I talked about you, this church. I said, if you have a moment and in need and need to come find some folks who will listen, who will encourage, who won't judge, and will help, come on over. And she said, thank you. So I went out to the car, and I got one of... The little cards that I still have a few of. You know these, remember these little cards? You know? And I lined out the old service times and I wrote in the new service times. I didn't correct the, mis, the, the misspelling on the back, serve the world as Christ disciples. Maybe that was intentional, I don't know. But I walked back in and when I saw her, she was hugging her daughter goodbye. She was going off to school, you know, the backpack and so on, heading off to the school bus. And I gave it to her. I said, here. And she said, thank you. Here's the request. Perhaps one of you women would take it upon yourself to go make contact with her. I will tell Amber who the business is and who the lady's name is. And if you have time, go and just maybe make, you know, make the transaction there and get to know her a little bit. Maybe then bring dinner some night. I mean, six days a week working every day and going. I mean, without her husband now, this lady's in pain. She's in stress. I don't know what will happen, but I know we will not reach out unless we reach out. They're out there. They're not going to come in here just by themselves. We need to be reaching out, holding forth the gospel, the word of the triune God. They are mine. So perhaps one of you will want to do that. I'll make the same announcement in the next service, and, and, and uh, perhaps it will happen happen. Let me thank you for your attention and for your patience. I know I went a little over on my time. It's been a blessing for me to labor in this and more so to look out upon you. God bless you all. May your word build you up. May his word build you up and grow in grace as you reach out in the world to effect real change in people and yourselves. Father, we thank you for the time. Give us a moment, Lord, as we consider before we come to your table and partake in the blood and the body of our Savior. And thank you for your word. Make it precious to us. In Jesus' name, amen.